0: Father, we have every reason to express gratitude to you, first and foremost for your son. And then there are endless ways, there are countless ways that you sustain our lives, that you, that you bless us and encourage us, that you let us know that you're with us. And we thank you for all those things. We thank you too for the chance to come before your word week in and week out. Holy Spirit, we look to you in this moment of preaching and ask for your help, both for the preacher and for all who come under your word. We pray for your help. We pray that we would see Christ with clarity and that we would know what it is to collect from you strength and love. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen. If God is your Father, then you're never alone. If God is your Father, then you're never alone. Jesus was alone. Jesus was forsaken so that you would never have to be. That's where we're starting this morning. So if you wake in the middle of the night gripped by fear in the darkness, your Father never sleeps or slumbers. Or if you stand alone in a crowd feeling invisible and isolated, your Father delights over you with singing. If you shake overtaken by anxiety to the point that your heart feels ready to burst, your father is at hand. If you sin in a big way and shame begins to suffocate you, your father never turns away in disgust. If you speak out alone for the sake of Christ, your father sees and will reward If you weep alone, shuddering with grief, your father stands ready to deliver comfort. If you sit in the doctor's office processing bad news, your father is a very present help in trouble. If God is your father, then you are never alone. And your sovereign father always hears and sends aid. Now, a good number of you have father pain, which understandably complicates your view of God. Our human fathers, even good dads, sin against us in ways that can obscure or even can ruin our view of God, our sense of God as a father, our ability to even believe that God can be a good father. So, part of our story as His people is thanking our dads for ways that they helped us to see God as father but also understanding their limits as sinful human beings. But part of our story is also letting the Bible shape our understanding of God as Father, to let the Bible influence and impact how we think about God in this way as a dad. Because in the Bible, we learn what a perfectly righteous, always good, totally powerful, ever-loving Father looks like. And this is, I think, what Paul does for us this morning. Not because he's sitting down to instruct us about prayer, but by his prayer we learn from him as he models for us what it looks like to approach God as Father. Because he turns to the Sovereign Father on behalf of the church in Ephesus. And here's what we learn from him, that humble and sincere prayers connect us to God's love and to God's strength. That prayer is a way that we access God's strength and His love for us. Paul teaches us, he models for us what God is like and how we should approach Him and what God does when we do approach Him. And I'm not sure all that you're struggling with this morning. But I do know how this prayer can minister to us in the middle of a variety of of isolation that comes from our struggles with sin and suffering. Psalm 20 says, Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And that's what we want to do together this morning. We see two sections of this prayer, genuine petition, and then later we'll see glorious praise. The genuine petition in verses 14 through 19 Paul's sincere prayer, intercession on behalf of the Ephesian church. What is he praying for? And then we end with this glorious praise, this glorious doxology from Paul. Now, in verses 14 to 15, we find out who Paul is praying to. Look at verses 14 and 15 of Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, he started this prayer, remember, in the beginning of chapter 3, where he says, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he's distracted And he comes back to the prayer in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, this Father, He may grant you, church in Ephesus, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Now, we are praying, Paul says, to a father. That's who Paul's praying to, but not just any father. This father is a king, But not just any king. This is a king over all the earth. Every family in heaven and on earth owes allegiance to this king, this father that Paul is praying to. The prerogative to name someone or something means that you have authority to do so. You name children You name your pets because you have authority over them. The king holds, this king holds the responsibility to name every family in heaven and on earth. This king has authority over all peoples. This is what Paul is modeling for us. He's praying to a father who is king over all the earth, which should lead the people praying to a place of humility. Because we show respect to a king. We bow our head. We divert our eyes. It's a fearful thing to stand before Aslan. We show him respect. We speak with deference. Because we know that all the earth will eventually bow down before the Lord. A nation who rejects or ignores or disregards God does so to its own peril. In Psalm 46, verse 8, Paul is praying to the great God of all the earth, and he addresses Him as Father. He is our sovereign Father. But here's the thing. We tremble before this kingly Father because of His holiness and His power, but also because of His love. And we wonder if such a God could actually exist, if beauty and invitation and rest can coexist with eternal power over all creation, but it can exist. It does exist in this king. This may not exist anywhere else in creation, but it does exist in our Father, the King of the universe. In fact, this king invites us to call upon him. For example, in Isaiah 55, we read, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. This sovereign God invites people to come to him. And Paul models this for us in this genuine prayer to the fatherly king. Now, what does he pray for? Paul prays for two things in his petition to God on behalf of the church in Ephesus. The first, strength for the journey. Paul prays for strength for the Ephesians. Look at verse 16 again. That according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, And here's the result, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He's praying for strength, that God the Father would grant strength to His people, delivered by the Holy Spirit, with the result that Christ dwells richly in their hearts. We need strength for the journey that we're on, and the strength that we need does not come from inside of us. It's not native to us. We need strength that comes from outside of us, that strengthens us for the journey that we're on. And Paul acknowledges that this strength comes from God Himself. It's delivered by the Spirit, and it results with Christ Himself dwelling in our hearts. It's a Trinitarian prayer focused on God's strength, requesting that strength for us. Psalm 2 Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He, uh, this is Psalm 20, actually. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Psalm 20. Who is Moses before the power of Pharaoh without the strength of God? Who is Deborah before an evil, unbelieving generation of Israelites without the strength of God? Who is David before the power of Goliath and King Saul without the strength of God? Who is Elijah before the power of Jezebel, without the strength of God? Who is Esther, before the power of the king, without the strength of God? Who is Stephen, before the power of the Pharisees, without the strength of God? Who is the church, before all the powers and principalities of this world, without the strength of God? It is God who supplies the strength. It does not come from inside of us. It is not native to us. It comes from God and it flows through us. And the strength that we need for the journey is not outward power. It is inward durability. It is not outward power. This strength shows up in our inward being, verse 16. It shows up in our hearts, verse 17. It shows up through faith, verse 17. It is not outward power, it is inward durability. This strength that we need is not swagger or strutting. It is resilient, durable, resounding, sturdy, enduring. That's what the Spirit delivers to us from the Father, and the result is Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith. It is the strength that allows us to stand firm under pressure, to bear down against sin, and to barrel forward toward the mission that Jesus gave us. That is the strength that Paul prays for. But the second thing he prays for, which is closely related, is a sense of God's love that will never let us go. Strength for the journey. Love that won't let us go. This is what Paul wants the Ephesian church to receive. This is the end of verse 17 through verse 19. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ... That surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness, fullness of God. Paul prays for a love that roots and grounds the church. It cements our feet to the ground. That's what this love does. With this love as an anchor for our souls, we can withstand a hundred varieties of trials: gusty, upsetting trials. And this love of God in Christ is a firm foundation. It is not a foundation that's constructed on sand. It is built on an ancient rock. God's love is like steel beams and reinforced concrete that plummet immovably 100 feet into the ground. It will stand like Mount Everest for thousands of years. This is the love of God that Paul wants us to be rooted and grounded upon. But it's more than that. It's more than a foundation because in verse 18, Paul tells us that we need the strength of God even to comprehend such love. With all the saints, we need His strength to wrap our minds around the intensity and the persistence and the brilliance of God's love. And it's because we don't see it anywhere. We don't feel it in our own hearts. This is alien and different and other, and so we can't comprehend it. The deepest part of the ocean is called Challenger Deep. It's in the Mariana Trench in the Pacific Ocean, and it's almost 36,000 feet deep. It's hard to comprehend exactly how deep 36,000 feet under the ocean surface really is. So let's submerge some of our familiar landmarks into the ocean. We'll flip them upside down and we'll submerge them in the ocean and try to wrap our minds around how deep the Challenger Deep Trench really is. Okay? The Washington Monument is 500 feet tall. So flip that upside down in your mind and stick it below the ocean level. The Eiffel Tower is twice as tall. It's a thousand feet tall. The Burj Khalifa, the tallest building in the world, is 2,700 feet deep. We're not even close, but flip those over in your mind and submerge them in the ocean. The Grand Canyon, 6,000 feet deep. The maximum diving depth of the beaked whale, 10,000 feet deep. We're not even a third of the way to the deepest part of the ocean. The Titanic, sits 12,500 feet below sea level at the bottom of the ocean floor about the average depth of the Pacific Ocean which is just 13,000 feet deep but the deepest known shipwreck is more than 2 times deeper than the Titanic the USS Samuel Roberts rests 22,000 feet below sea level Mount Everest Flip over Mount Everest in your minds, submerge it in the ocean. The tallest mountain in the world is only 29,000 feet deep. We still need to get to 36,000 feet deep. So here's how we're gonna get there. I want you to imagine us at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. And we're gonna summit the Grand Canyon. We're gonna take the 15-hour hike up 6,000 feet to the top of the Grand Canyon. And as soon as we get to the summit of the Grand Canyon, we're gonna begin climbing Everest. And we're gonna climb Mount Everest 30, 30, 29,000 feet. But that's still not tall enough. You could come out of the Grand Canyon and immediately climb Everest and you're still not to the bottom of the Challenger Deep. So take the Eiffel Tower and stick it on top of Everest. Or take two Washington Monuments and stick them on top of Mount Everest. Start at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, climb to the top, then scramble up to the top of Mount Everest, then scramble to the top of the Eiffel Tower or the Washington Monument twice, and you've reached the bottom of the Challenger Deep. It is hard to fathom just how deep the ocean can be. And don't get me started on the volume of the ocean. (laughs) But God can hold the ocean In his hands. And God can quiet the waters with his voice. So that Christ may be dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you being rooted and grounded in love. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God's love surpasses knowledge. The breadth and length and height and depth cannot be comprehended. We cannot plumb the depths of God's love. It is more brilliant than the sun. It is intensely focused and committed. It is long-suffering and patient think about it. You can love someone, and then the more you get to know them, the irritating stuff starts to come to the surface. God fully knows you. He fully knows you, and He fully loves you. He knows our shortcomings. He knows our rebellion. He knows every flaw. He knows every embarrassment. He loves us first. He loves us fully, and He will love us till the end. Nothing will separate us from His love, And it is impossible to comprehend this love, which is why Paul says we need God's help to comprehend with all the saints what the love of God really is, so that we would, with increasing measure, be filled with the fullness of God, that we would drink His love until we float, that we would drink it down until our feet are anchored in the concrete of His love. That we would be rooted and grounded in love no matter what our struggles with suffering and sin may be. Now, let's get more practical. Why do we need a sense of God's strength and His love? Why is it good? Why does Paul pray for strength and love for the Ephesians? That we would know God's strength, that we would know His love. Why does he pray this for the church? Knowing God's strength and His love... Helps us to know our Father. Not just know facts about our Father, not just to know Bible verses about God, but to know our Father. Knowing the truth about God is critical. Without knowing God in the Bible, we're prone to create an image of God based on our own desires and imaginations. So knowing the Bible is critical, but it's not enough. To know the Bible. We want to know the God of the Bible. We want to know not just facts about Him, we want to know Him. We want to experience Him. The Bible ushers us into a relationship with a good and sovereign Father. The Bible invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed, happy is the man who takes refuge in Him. We want our taste buds to confirm the truth of the Word that God is good. We've tasted Him and we know that God is good. Even when life is hard, we know that His heart is good. We know that God is a reliable refuge for us. Even when life is hard, blessed is the one who takes refuge in God, who sets up camp in the middle of this refuge of our sovereign Father, experiencing the strength and love of God, helps us to know, not just know about, our Father. But secondly, it helps us to fight our sin. We are kidding ourselves if we expect to live a faithful life with Jesus in our own strength. It cannot be done. The deepest underwater dive, human being, deepest underwater dive is 2,000 feet. Was it the diver's strength that took them to 2,000 feet? No, it was the atmospheric suit that they were wearing and breathing in that allowed them to get to that depth. Paul, in chapters 4 through 6 of Ephesians, is about to call us to a whole host of commands to fight sin, to pursue righteousness, to put our sin to death. We don't do this in our own effort. We experience an experience of God's surging strength and love is what leads us to pursue the commands that we'll find in the second part of Ephesians. When God raised his people from the dead, he gave us a new heart that can choose righteousness. He gave us His Spirit to ignite and enable a righteous life that makes God's heart glad. So fight sin in prayer. Think about the sins even this week that have a death grip on your heart. Tap into the strength that God provides through prayer. Remind yourself in prayer, access His love for you in Christ that leads and drives us towards glad-hearted obedience because of all that Christ has done on our behalf. We turn in gratitude toward this God and pursue Him with righteousness. Knowing God's strength and love also helps us endure our pain. Suffering is common in this life. That's what the profound theological film The Princess Bride tells us. (laughs) Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who tells you differently is selling something. When we are in pain, the stubborn reality of love will not let us go. Because God stands with us in our pain. We are not alone in our pain. Isaiah 63 verse 9, In all their afflictions he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. In their affliction, He was afflicted. And the angel of His presence saved them. In His love and in His pity, in His compassion, He redeemed them. And He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Not only is God committed to carrying you through, not keeping you from, but carrying you through trouble. And not only is he committed to hammering out his good purposes through that trouble, God stands with you in the middle of it. God carries you through it. You may sit weeping in the dark, but you do not sit weeping in the dark alone. You are rooted and grounded in his love. Your hearts are rooted and strengthened in his love. And finally, it helps us to pursue our mission to know our Father, to fight our sin, to endure our pain, and pursue our mission. A right understanding and a right access of God's strength and God's love helps us pursue our mission. The love and strength of God delivered through the river of prayer helps us here. Jesus gave us a job and then gives us the motivation and the ability and the power to do that job. His love and His strength In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes to Timothy near the end of his life and says, At my first defense, Timothy, when I was standing before the emperor, no one came to stand by me. I stood alone. All deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was saved from the lion's mouth and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul certainly would have preferred to stand with other Christians before the emperor. But even though no people stood with him, there was a clear sense that the Lord himself was with Paul, standing with him, and not just standing there, but strengthening him. And not just strengthening him, but strengthening him so that he might proclaim the gospel, so that all might hear. Paul's abandonment by fellow believers at that moment did not thwart or slow God's purposes for him. Paul's imprisonment Paul's lonely defense before the emperor advanced the gospel. Now, Paul's prayer doesn't end with this petition. Paul's prayer ends for the Ephesians with glorious praise. Verses 20 and 21. We come back to the sovereign father, the one before whom we kneel in prayer, the one from whom every family on heaven and earth is named. It is this father, this sovereign father that deserves our praise. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now this is incredible. Paul says that when you're in a jam and you pause to think about what to pray for, what to ask about, that our Father can do abundantly more than we ask or think in that moment. He can far exceed all you think to ask for in that moment of need. He can do it. And He can do it according to the power that's at work within us. There is no resource that He lacks. There is no need He experiences. There's no knot He cannot untie. There is no challenge that He cannot overcome. There is no need that he can't meet. There's no disease that he can't heal. There is no sinner that he can't save. There's no sin he can't forgive. There is no good gift that he cannot give. There is no enemy that he can't conquer. Our God, this sovereign Father, can do abundantly more than we can even think or ask in the moment. So, the pressing question to God's children is this. The question that gets pushed right in front of us is this. Knowing that I can do all things, will you trust me? When I don't take away the pain, when I carry you through the furnace, when the water lines hover right around your chin, will you depend on me? Will you trust me as a father? Will you ground yourself in my love? Will you rest in the strength that I can supply? Will you allow me to develop the deep durability deep in the recesses of your heart? Will you trust me to develop character and resilience and endurance and strength of will and hope? A couple of us are reading through a book together <clears throat> on Tuesday mornings and We read of the story of this young dad, young kids at home, active all his life. And I think he was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And as the disease began to reduce his mobility and to take away his physical strength, in a moment of honest confession, he said to the Lord, I feel like you're taking me out of the game when I still have so much more to give. And what he sensed back from the Lord was this. I'm just putting you into the game right now. There's a sense in which the moment is upon you. And I think there's a lot of truth to that, to a lot of the suffering that we walk through. It's not a detour. It may very well be the point of the game, the point that you've been being prepared for. And all those little moments, it's not like they don't matter. Everything that leads up to those bigger moments, it's, they matter. They matter. They're all developing. God is collecting them up in our character as we trust Him to prepare us for the next big moment that we're walking through. Our sovereign Father hears and He sends aid, meaning He can supply what we need for the moment. He will supply what we need for the moment. We have no promise that He will take us from suffering, that He will help us to avoid it. We do have a promise that He will lead us through it. Through dark valleys or through still waters, our Father will lead us, and He will lead us all the way safely home. Will we let our sovereign God lead in our lives? He who did not spare His own Son. We need this seared into our hearts. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all. That's the biggest gift He could give. How will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Will we trust our Father's leadership in those moments of isolation? We can with Paul. It is possible even in the midst of the valley. It is possible with Paul to move from earnest petition to glorious praise. Sometimes with our hearts still grieving, we can come to a place of glorious praise, even when our circumstances remain unresolved. Paul began by telling us that our Father is the sovereign God, the sovereign Father over every family on heaven and earth. That's how he began. He ends by telling us that our Father is sovereign over every generation. Verse 21, To Him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, and forever and ever. Amen. If God is your Father, then you are never alone. If God is your Father, you are never alone. No matter the struggles you're having with sin and suffering, humble and sincere prayer in the middle of each of those moments connects us to God's strength And love. It opens up a river of God's strength and love that will pour into our hearts and ground us so that Christ is seated firmly on the throne of our hearts by faith. The Spirit, like a river, delivers the strength and love that we desperately need. So let's commit ourselves to pray alone, in our households, and together as a church family. Let's know our God fight our sin, endure our pain, and pursue our mission, all relying on His strength and love. The two of you had a a vision for a season of prayer and fasting, and the elders taking that counsel and encouragement will be leading us from January through March, Easter's the end of March, we're going to lead us through a season this winter of fasting and prayer. There's a variety of ways we're going to do that. You'll hear more in the weeks to come. But the main point at this point is just <clears throat> knowing that we have an opportunity for humble and dependent prayer, to access the strength and love of God through prayer. We want to depend on the Lord together and to anticipate His work in our lives, to not take for granted that He longs to work through our prayers for His ends. So as Mitchell and James come forward, let me end by reading Micah 7, 7 and 8. But as for me, I'll look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord Himself will be a light to me. Would you stand and let's sing together?